Janine Rees is a survivor and a survivor leader living in Brisbane, Australia. Today, she shares her personal experience of domestic violence and her mission to transform systems that trap women and children in abusive homes and traumatic situations. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. This episode may include details of domestic violence and intimate partner abuse that some may find troubling or triggering. Janine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Maria. Happy to be here. So I encountered your work on social media, and I found your voice uh, very compelling and how you so clearly articulate the experience, experience of domestic violence family courts, rape, and many other related topics and crimes against women, and how empowering it is for all of us to have your strong voice as part of the conversation in the movement to end domestic violence and violence against women. And I know from your uh, posts on social media and things that you've written that you're a survivor yourself of domestic violence. And as we say at Genesis Women's Shelter and Support, survivors are the experts. If you would, please share your story, whatever part of it or all of it that you want to share with our listeners today. Um, Well, I'm 53 years old now, and I, my first serious relationship was with my um, perpetrator. And we met when I was 18, and he was 19. Um, There was intimate partner violence from the very start, um, albeit intermittent. I didn't understand what was happening um, and he was very good with the love bombing and I fell in love um, quite deeply and thought this was the man of my dreams. Um, It really was a very, um, you know, the sweep you off your feet, amazing start to the relationship um but even after a month or so the first incident of um abuse began happened um and i was very young and i didn't understand what was happening um to me so when incidents of abuse would happen i did not know how to um understand it or think about it and i think i just parked it i put it filed it away in a space in my brain where i didn't know how to deal with it the cognitive dissonance was so great i just and i was young i suppose um and the relationship went on like that um until the point he would get very angry um, especially when he was drinking um he would break my things throw things at me break, you know, bang on doors, those sorts of aggressive behaviours. And then he hit me um, probably in my early 20s and that was a very big wake-up call and I um, ended the relationship but not for very long. I was sort of, you know, suckered back in or hoovered back in as we 
say, um, with the apologies and the promises of change. And, um, and I think that it, it just became that pattern of honeymoon period, you know, walking on eggshells, abuse. Um, and I always thought I was the one with the problem. Like I, I would try to be better. I would try to do things better, try to not upset him. Um, and we ended up getting married. And after that, I did try to leave him numerous times during the relationship. So probably I'd say around about a dozen times I had tried to leave. Um, and I made a serious attempt to leave when I was 29. And um, and that didn't work again. I went back to him. Um, he was very, the love bombing stage happened again. And I just was really stuck in that cycle. And I, But I didn't understand it. I did not know um, that there was a cycle of violence. I just, I thought um, I suffered from depression. I thought it was my fault. It was my issues. Um, and then we ended up having, after I went back to him at 29, um, not too much longer after that, I ended up having my first child. And we, we had three children. And by the time we'd had our first third child, um, after that, I've noticed a huge difference in him. Um, he became much darker, um, much more secretive. His addictions increased. Um, the abuse just slowly increased over that time. Um, and then so it, it ended up being a 30-year um, relationship. And I think maybe getting to that point of three decades, 30 years, um, and continued abuse um, started to make me think what this is um it's it's horrendous and i was in physical pain from constantly having high high cortisol levels and living in fight flight or freeze um my children were seeing me being belittled and mistreated um often in the end i thought i'd hidden it very well but as they got older um and as my son got older, he really began to train my son in um, in how to mistreat women. And when my son, little son, um, started speaking to me in the same way that my ex husband was, I realised this was, you know, not ever going to get better, not ever going to change. Um, and finally, after thirty years, I ended the marriage and said um, I couldn't bear another second and um he then his first comment when I said I was ending the marriage was you're not getting this house yeah. and that's and he he walked out um and it took him a few months to move out um but I really noticed a massive shift in the coercive control like I really I really still didn't understand that I was in a domestic violence relationship I just knew I was being harmed and that my kids were seeing it. Um, even with the sexual assaults, I really didn't, I, I, you know, to me, rape was being beaten and um, held down. And um, it wasn't until towards the end that I realised that what he was doing was uh, was rape. And, um, and I was just not able to function in the end. It was... Um, constant um, sexual abuse in the end. 
Um, all of his addictions increased. So everything just increased towards the end of the relationship. Um, so the last year was just um, un- unfathomable <laughs> abuse that I just couldn't even, um, I couldn't function. And I know if I'd stayed that I just wouldn't have survived it. Um, but the the narrative really changed. Like we talk about them flipping the narrative once we leave um, and it turned to constant um, punishment and revenge and aggression and abuse. So once I had left, that exposed him basically as, um, and I spoke to my family and a few friends. So once I told people what he was doing to me, um, that's when I was public enemy number one and I had to be um, dealt with and discredited. So after I'd left him, he started, he went to, he'd already started a narrative that he was the victim um, just before we'd separated. So we'd been talking about separating. Um, he'd been telling me he had, he hated me and um, it was only with me for the kids, but um, the abuse just was constant. And after, probably a few months after I'd left, I started to hear that he was saying he was the victim of me, that I was abusing him. So basically anything that he had done to me, I think he was just repackaging um, as and putting himself as the victim, which we know now as Davo, um, deny and reverse, uh, d- deny attack, reverse victim and offender. And it's a very common um, tactic of perpetrators. So after we separated, he was um, d- d- had to discredit me. So he started telling um, friends and family that I was mentally unwell, told my family that I was hearing voices and that I needed hospitalisation and um, mental health intervention. Um, and, of course, they were worried about me. So, um, yeah, and same with friends um, and, and his support group or his friends were also ringing friends of mine um, to explain that I was mentally ill and um, and that I had all these problems. So I didn't realise this was going on um, until they started to tell me and, uh, and it just got worse from there. Um, he was stalking me. Um, he would, you know, he would drive around the street as I was walking and follow me and, you know, park and... Um, and just give me these death stares that only only we can <laughs> understand. Um, he stopped paying for our mortgage, um, so he, he stopped putting anything towards it, like he, he wouldn't put anything at all in, um, stopped paying towards the kids, was telling them he's not paying for their needs until um, until I'd sold the house. So he, his plan was revenge and financial decimation basically um he was entering the, our house after he'd moved out for about a year um he would take things things started breaking um and he would be you know johnny on the spot and oh your your garage door's broken oh let me fix it uh, oh your toilet door's broken let me fix it um and i i was scared of him i i, I started to really fear for my um, safety and the kids' safety. 
the week before I'd left him, um, he he drove us around the top of a sheer cliff in a really in, dangerously close to the edge. Um, and, I, you know, he laughed when I was terrified and our kids were in the car um, and he skidded to the very edge of the the sheer drop. There's no way we would have survived it. And he just looked at me and said, what? <laughs> um, and laughed at me when I was terrified. And, and in that moment, I really thought he was going to drive us over the edge. I really thought that was our last second on the planet. Um, and I look back at that now and I think that was a, a threat. That was him saying, this is what <laughs> I'm capable of. Um, and, and also that no one knows, like no one knows this monster. Um, he presents as a really fantastic, charismatic, um, charming, everyday bloke. Um, only we, only the kids and I have seen the dark side, really. He was very good at keeping everything behind closed doors. Um, so I knew, and and because of the things he'd done to me, I knew how dangerous he is, was. Um, so eventually um, I had a lawyer and she said, you know, he, this is not okay, this is domestic violence, he should not be entering the house without your permission. Um so we ended up getting a protection order, police pr- protection order, to stop him from entering the house, um, to stop him from following me and stalking me and sending me abusive messages and texts and emails. Uh, it was just a constant bombardment. Um, and the, the children were listed on the protection order as well. So once I did that, I didn't realise, I didn't understand post-separation abuse um, or legal abuse. So he had a, a top tier family lawyer from the start as soon as we separated. And of course, I and he had taken my name off our business account. So I had no access to any of our money. He had fully taken over our business that we'd created together. Um, he had fully taken over all of our finances before we separated. Um, I had to sort of ask him for money for groceries. Uh, one night I was out for dinner with a few friends. The, the dinner cost $25 or $40, something like that. Um, and there was no money in the account. He shifted money out of the account as he started doing. So I was left with no money. I had to ring him and ask him if I could pay, have money to pay for the dinner. And, he, you know, he said no. You've spent too much money this week. No. So I'm, I'm stuck there with no money. Um and I was crying. I just, you know, it just was beyond my understanding that anyone thought they had the right to do that when, you know, we, we both um, were a part of, of a marriage. Like it just, it became, he was the boss of everything. Um, and I was no good at anything. Um, everything I did was wrong. Um, nobody liked me. I was unlikable. Um, I was useless was a common thing he would say. Um so once the protection order was in place um, and I also applied for child support because he wouldn't pay anything towards the kids so all the financial burden fell to me and I had no access to joint funds that we had or um, I was working as a teacher. Um, so once I had applied for the DVO and the child support, he went to family court and I hear that that's a very common behaviour. So once you assert 
a little bit of um, agency or um, your independence, but um, it's not allowed. So that's when he ended up going to the family court and he filed for full custody of the children, stating that I had mental health issues and wasn't um, was not a good mother. After being the, the main carer for the kids all of their lives, I taught part-time, um, worked around kids' schedules. I did all the main caring for the kids. So suddenly I was um, a mentally ill uh, woman, crazy woman, um, hysterical woman, um, unable to look after the three children I'd raised. Um, and, yeah, that that was just terrifying to think that, he could take the children um, and knowing his history of um, of sexual violence and control and abuse, um, he just, it, it was not safe for the kids to be alone with him basically or overnight with him. Um, so from that point, everything I did was focused on how do I keep my children safe from him um, and he was also trying to sell the house. So his main goal was to make us homeless. <laughs> he'd offered for the kids to live with him. Um, he'd, he'd even offered for him to move out of his place and I could move in there. Uh, so he was really still trying to control everything we did and everything I did. Um, and it ended up that through there, um, lawyers who I, I can't even believe what happened in the court you know I'm a teacher <clears throat> we we work in a respectful manner speak respectfully to each other and once I entered the court the judge um, was just horrifying I couldn't believe that a grown man could speak to a woman in that way it was very much like my perpetrators behaviors the way he spoke the you know the control and the um arrogance and the belittling that I experienced from the judge was another level. I, it's, it was just um, shocking. Um, his first barrister at the first hearing um, read out an account of my sexual assault and, you know, the judge and the barrister were laughing about it and the judge was shaking his head. The barrister said, oh, Your Honour, it's another one of those domestic violence cases. And so, the judge, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, what year did that happen? Uh, 2020, <laughs> not long ago. Uh, yes. So that the problem with the family court is that it's filled with judges who belong to the boys' club. Um, you know, it was. I, I sat there hearing circus music in my mind because it was just. It was a circus. It was a show. It was a performance by his barrister. Um, and I just assumed that the justice system was about justice um, and hearing the truth and, you know, looking at the evidence. But I was quickly found out it was nothing of those things, none of those things. Um, so I knew from the start this judge was not um, going to be very helpful um, when he's shaking his head at, as though I'm, you know, making up. 30 years of domestic violence. Um, so the, the, the family court case was just debilitating and horrendous and no victim survivor should ever have to go through that 
torture. No children should ever have to go through what my kids went through in the family court. And the outcome of it was that he got everything he paid for. So he paid for access to his children um, after they'd been safe from him for a year or so. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he got he won the right to sell the house. So basically my I was joint owner of the house and my right to to my own house was removed from me, stripped. So the judge said he could sell the house without my signature. So I had no rights to my own property. The judge agreed he kept the business. He kept 100% of the business. Um, so basically he was awarded all assets and I had nothing. Um, and I ended up inheriting a bad credit rating from him, from the business. And in the very final stage of the court case, the judge ordered myself and my children into immediate vacant possession. So evicted us that? from our home. Evicted us from our home, gave him possession of the house. Um, so vacant possession means you have to hand the house to him um, empty. And on the orders, it said the bailiff would come and change the locks and we would be removed forcibly by police if necessary. Um, and the judge made it that day. So I was at the hearing and my ex-husband was asking for 14 days so to have us out of the house in 14 days. And I explained to the judge that, um, you know, there was no rentals around. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I had no money to get a rental. I had no rental history. He had all the money tied up. Um, and that obviously enraged the judge. And instead of giving my ex-husband the 14 days, he ordered it for that day. So on the spot, he said, you know, immediate vacant possession. So we were to be immediately um, cast out of our house with nowhere to go. Um, so my ex-husband then decided he'd let us stay for the two weeks. So he agreed to give us the two weeks after that hearing. Um, but he had the right to revoke that if he wanted. So we started packing madly and I had lots of wonderful friends and family that came and helped us to pack. So we packed in the first few days because I knew he would um, cause as much pain as possible. And um, it would have been, I'm trying to think, must have been five days, six days later, he did revoke it. Um, so he said, no, I'm not giving you till the up to the 14 days. You've, you need to get out today. So he did do that. Um, and so we had booked we had organized to move on the friday and this was the monday um oh sorry the tuesday so on that tuesday he we were told that we had to get out that day um and the bailiff could come at any time and change the locks so my daughters and i just started moving boxes outside over the boundary line um and then neighbors started to help us and then friends and family came so we had a like uh i don't know 50 people helping us move out, move our stuff out over the boundary because anything left behind he would keep, it would be his to decide whether, you know, whether we could have our own belongings or not. Um, yeah, I, I just couldn't believe any of it 
was possible. It was just like living in a nightmare. And so then after that, we lived with my sister on the other side of town. So my three children and I lived with my sister on the other side of town. Um, All of their schools were (laughs) the other side of town. So I had to drive them, you know, across town to get to school. Um, We also stayed in friends' houses when if they were away for a week so we could, you know, have a place to ourselves. Um, and another friend had a unit um, available sort of during the week, not on the weekends. She used it on the weekends so we would come and go back to my sister's almost weekly or fortnightly. Um, that, and that happened for five months. We were homeless for five months because all of the money from the sale was tied up in... Um, his solicitor's trust fund. So he still had control over everything. Um, The judge ordered that he could sell the house to his friends. So the judge ordered which real estate agent we had to use. So I had no choice in that. Um, I couldn't get a higher price. The market was going up exponentially and he ordered that we could only use this one agent. Then he even ordered who the house would be sold to, which these people were a friend of my ex-husband. So the the name of the buyer was in the order. Um, He then ordered if the buyer pulled out for any reason, he could sell it to them for a cheaper price. It just, it was, I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, And all of those things happened. So it was sold under value. And in the end, I, I ended up um, with zero dollars. He'd worked it that he'd made, created enough debt. So he created revenge debt, I call it, in the business. He'd stopped paying taxes um, and ran up a huge tax bill, $320,000. Um, he'd run up the line of credit in the business account, so $100,000 there, so nearly a half a million dollars in revenge debt that he'd created single-handedly I had no access to the accounts or the business and the judge ordered that agreed that that was just and equitable that all of his debts be paid out and I received um, zero after the debt that I'd inherited from him and that was his plan from the start I think to financially decimate me and the cost of of having to try and find lawyers as I could i get lawyers um, intermittently advice because I couldn't afford the $10,000, dollars $25,000 for a hearing. Um, but his parents were wealthy and paid for his um, legal fees. So, yeah, it was, it's, it was like being in a boxing ring with my hands tied behind my back and a blindfold on. Um, it was utterly unjust. And afterwards I started to meet other women who'd been through the exactly exactly the same thing um, and worse. They had lost their children to the perpetrator, um, sole custody. And I, there's women that I know and speak to now who haven't seen their children for years. Um, other women have to pay hundreds of dollars to go to a contact centre to see their children once a fortnight or once a month. Um it's and and women have taken their lives that um, I don't personally know, but friends of women that I've met through um, family court abuse um, who take their lives because you know their children are taken away from them. 
Um, and these are victims of domestic violence. The court doesn't recognise it. The court's um, hugely patriarchal. Um, it's a boys' club. And um, we are advised by lawyers not to disclose domestic family and sexual violence or we will likely lose our children, um, which makes no sense. You know, this is 2023 and they're still telling us that. Um, but we're having we're having change now in Australia with this new government, finally. Um, but, um, yeah, my story um, is not uncommon. It's quite, it's, it's the norm, unfortunately. Um, my children were ordered to live with him 50-50 um, for a small, for um, a time, and they, they did it for a little bit and then they all refused. And I'm lucky that my children are older and they're very um, vocal about um, their needs. Others aren't so lucky. Um, if they were younger, I very likely could have lost them to the perpetrator. Mm. I'm, I'm just, I'm speechless. The depth of this experience and the violence and abuse that you have been through. Um, I want to thank you for having to tell us that story and, and reliving some of this. I know that that is very challenging. And this has been an odyssey for you of 30 plus years of, you know, spending time in a relationship with intimate partner abuse and then unwinding from it, you know, trying to unwind from there and move on with your life. So thank you for just allowing us to, to hear about your experience because it, it is, it does give other survivors at least some hope that, you know, they're not alone um, and some support that, that they know that others have, have been through, these things and and you're on the other side of it and I know that's you know it's never really the end you decide when when you feel like everything's been healed and but I'm so regretful that that happened to you or that it happens to anyone um it sounds like things in Australia are very challenging for women in abusive relationships and I wanted to talk about that a little bit with you because in the United States the statistic that is typically used to describe the scope of domestic violence is one in four women experience abuse in a lifetime. In Texas, where I live and work, that stat is one in three women. And I offer these statistics as a way to contextualize the experience, even though we know that these crimes, you know, often go unreported or underreported. And um, you live in Australia, specifically in Brisbane, part yes. of Queensland, yep. region, yes. correct? Yes. So um, maybe you can offer us the scope of domestic violence in your homeland and help us understand its prevalence. Yes. Um, I don't think it's very, the statistics aren't terribly different to, to yours. Um, our national plan for women and children's safety um, has just been launched last year and the statistics in there say that violence against uh, that one in three women has experienced physical violence since the age of 15 and one in five has experienced sexual violence. On average, a woman is killed by an intimate partner every 10 days. 
rates of violence are even higher for certain groups such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. A woman is also more likely to experience violence at particular life stages, such as while pregnant or while separating from a relationship. In 2021, girls aged 10 to 17 made up 42% of female sexual assault victims. Um, and out of all of the, out of, so it's in, in this um, data, 95% of people who experience physical or sexual violence name a male as the pep- as the perpetrator. Um, and 5% of women in their 20s have experienced sexual violence and women with disability or illness um, higher rates. So um, the prevalence is just shocking. Um, and I think it ha- it's something that was kept behind closed doors for a very long time. And I can really see in the last, maybe in in the last decade, but the last five years in particular, that domestic violence has been in our, in the mainstream media, um, which is a huge change. We've had some really high um, profile, which sounds awful, I hate using that word, um, murders. Um, One was Hannah Clark and her three children, um, which really brought... Um, domestic violence and coercive control into the spotlight. Um, and Rosie Batty's son, Luke Batty, another child um, taken by, murdered by his father um, as part of the coercive control. So, you know, these amazing families have really spoken out loud and clear that this is preventable. Um, you know, listen to the victims, listen to the survivors there's no possibility of change without hearing the stories of of what's happening Um, and understanding coercive control and the perpetrators need to be in control and to subjugate um, their victims. That is at the centre of domestic violence. It's not um, a loss of control. It's not an anger management issue. It's a premeditated, sadistic um, behavior and you know it's a learned behavior so it can it can be changed it can be stopped um but up until now there's been no accountability there still isn't you know my perpetrator has not been made accountable for anything i've reported so many breaches of the protection order and we recently had um, an inquiry in queensland into the police force here and the data didn't shock any domestic violence survivors, but, um, you know, the general public got to hear that police don't do their job. They actually are not doing the job they're paid to do by, by the taxpayer, um, and they don't follow up breaches. They don't charge perpetrators. And the, the worst um, outcome from that com- inquiry was the learning that misogyny was deeply ingrained in the police force. You know, there's a lot of perpetrators in the police force. Um, Officer-involved domestic violence is is a huge issue here. Um, And I'm not sure what's happened from that, what's come out of that report or inquiry. You know, I don't know. I don't believe any police officers have been um, removed. I don't think... There's been actual change, um, and it's 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 
heartbreaking to see all of the information being laid out, um, but no real change yet for um, for survivors' safety or for perpetrator accountability. That's the missing piece. Um, and unfortunately, the justice system, as every lawyer I spoke to said, is broken, um, which is just mind-boggling that these people are working in a, sy- a system that they know is harming people um, and they just brush it off and say, you know, oh, the system's broken, but it's the only one we've got, right? And that, that's not good enough. Um, I think we hear that strange. here in the United States as well. Um, and you're right, those statistics that you mentioned for the prevalence of domestic violence and sexual assault in Australia are very similar to what we talk about in the United States. The way that you describe uh, family court and other issues around prosecuting domestic violence offenders is very similar to what we also experience in the United States. And the statement, the court system is broken um, within this context is something we say very often in the United States uh, and at Genesis where, I mean, we offer uh, no cost legal services to women who experience domestic violence. We have a huge caseload we have a small team. And so we're only able to offer that civil representation to so many people, you know, um, because we only have so many attorneys and there's only so much time, but uh, it matters. And in a case like yours, where you didn't have the same financial access as your abuser, to legal representation, it matters, you know, that pro bono services, uh, legal services for women in these abusive relationships are really important. And when they ask women, well, why don't you just leave? Well, you stated so many of the reasons that uh, survivors often have to contemplate if they want to get out of a relationship like that. Safety being number one, children being a huge priority, financial, lack of resources, lack of access. And then once you get to the point where you have left and you're trying to manage the situation and have a sense of agency, like you said, um, the court system becomes your obstacle. So you described a little bit of a turning point um, in Australia when you talked about uh, these high-profile cases. Do you think that those have helped to kind of shed more light on what's happening and possibly uh, could affect some change, or are there other things happening that can also have a positive impact? Yes, I, I definitely think that the the families um, of the victims have really opened a, a door. Um, coercive control was not in the public vernacular. Um, and it is such a hard concept to understand because I think um, we can't understand that somebody does harmful things on purpose. You know, I think the average person... When we make a mistake, we're, we're sorry, we'll, we'll fix it up. I'm so sorry. Um, and we can't understand that pe- there are people in this world who choose to harm people. Um, you know, we always think 
even the excuses I made for my ex-husband were that he was um, drunk, who was drinking, or he was stressed, or he was tired. In the end, he was hungry, you know, he would say, oh, he was hungry. And it, there was always an excuse. Um, and we make excuses for these men um, where there's no excuse. There's no reason to systematically control someone and re- remove their agency. You know, it's 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 shocking. And we can't get our heads around the fact that they're doing it on purpose, that it actually makes them feel good to to harm and control you. Um, so that's a big awakening for people to see that this is a pattern of behaviour. Um, it's a choice. Um, and without holding these perpetrators accountable, we're not going to get any change. And this is the the, the current um, theme, I, I think, is, is perpetrator accountability and system account. You know, perpetrators in the system, the judges and the police that are doing the wrong thing need to be held accountable um, where they've got, a, they have gotten away with it for so very long, you know, um, and yeah, I just, I think there's a massive shift, especially, um, since this government has come in, the last government was a boys club. Um, they did nothing. They covered up all of these problems. Um, this government is much more, open and honest, it seems. We need more transparency. So a few more changes we've got happening here. Uh, a ind- an independent judicial commission is on the horizon. So, you know, the, the judges have been able to do whatever they like. They have abused with impunity. Um, there's no oversight. There's no, you know, they, they're above the law at the moment. Um, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. And I've seen it firsthand. Um, so, you know, the Judicial Commission will go a long way to judges being watched and to know that they're being watched. Um, another change we have is changes to the Family Law Act. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know where I sit with those changes. Um, you know, it's great that they're looking at it, but it, it's such a, a system mired in misogyny. I just, I can't see how changing laws will change that culture. Um, I, I think, you know, I think the family court should be abolished. And I hear the same, that they're the same issues all around the world with the family court. Um, it's a business. People are making money from, um, from domestic violence. Um, you know, the perpetrator is a family lawyer's bread and butter in the family court. They're making hundreds of thousands and you know i've met women who've spent a million dollars trying to protect their children it's and people like me had no money so we're in there you know un unsupported um so that the changes to the family law they're at least recognizing that perpetrators use the family court as another avenue to harm and control so that's now out in the mainstream media where it's never been before so that is a massive shift to actually be talking about that. The government uh, media release stated that 80% of family court cases involved domestic violence. So that figure hasn't been publicly um, uh, spoken about either. Where we knew it, <clears throat> people who've been through it knew, um, but and people working in the system know it, and you know the frontline workers 
no. So that's a massive change to actually be saying this whole this system, the family court system, is built on domestic violence. It's, it's you know, for all intents and purposes, a domestic violence court, um, but it's not equipped to deal with t- domestic violence. It has not got the right um, procedures or understanding, um, and the, the, the victim survivor is re-traumatised and re-abused through this, through this process. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I've heard you use the term uh, family court abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Um, I think I realised that it's the same patterns of behaviour as the perpetrator used. Um, so it, it's the same tactics. Um, it's the crazy making, um, the the blaming the woman for, you know, everything. She's mentally ill. Um, she's hysterical. She's vindictive. She's a gold digger. She's, you know, all of the tropes we've heard about, about women um, and that, the, the you know, the man is this great bloke who who just wants to see his kids um, and that's the goal is to keep the children from the mother um, because that's they know that that is the greatest pain the mother can um, endure so yeah it's it's that same pattern of gaslighting um, you know mentally ill women um, if you bring up abuse you're um, if you tell the truth about domestic violence you are hit with parental alienation syndrome. You are purposely trying to turn your children away from their father instead of seeing um, what's truly happening is that he's an abuser and it's not safe for them to be with him. So it's a cover-up, you know, the same cover-up act that they do, the perpetrator does in your relationship to the outside world. He's a great bloke um, and behind closed doors not. Um it's, yeah, all of the same tactics. Um, and we are um, patronised. It's, it's, it's so paternalistic. It's, you know, women are just, women and children have no rights. We're, we're still viewed as chattels in the family court. Um, and it, it, it is like stepping back in time. I, I, every time I was in there, I just could not believe what was happening um, and the injustice, and I know it's the same for for most women who who are dragged in there, and no healthy parent um, goes to family court. You know, a, a, a healthy couple that separate negotiate um, the best outcomes for their kids with their kids front and centre. Um, an unhealthy perpetrator cannot negotiate; they will not negotiate. Um, so they are using the court as a weapon to continue to to get their way. They're almost like giant toddlers um, throwing a tantrum. You know, you can't you can't have anything. He said to me, the kids are kids are mine, the house is mine, the business is mine. It's it's a it's like a toddler, um, the way that they think. Their thinking patterns are just so skewed that women um, just don't deserve anything. Um, and they're they're the center of the universe, unfortunately. I think that uh people who do that who continue abuse or you or weaponize the the family court against their victim they know how powerful that weapon is it's hugely powerful it's make or break a situation it can leave a person homeless 
I mean, Absolutely. you you have uh, really explained it very well, and what the impact can be when um, when we find ourselves in these situations, and we do have to be in the court system. But you didn't stop there. I have also read and heard about other things you're doing as a survivor leader, if you will, um, mm-hmm. in this space. Tell us how you are working for change and progress and empowerment uh, for survivors and, and women all throughout the country. Uh, well, I I think, well, it was difficult. <laughs> um, I didn't have agency to start with. I was very broken and um, the PTSD was really difficult. I found that um, probably I joined a support group um, maybe a year after we'd separated and it was it was very empowering and healing um, to hear the stories of other women um, from all walks of life and it's this it's like we all had the same abuser like it the stories are just it was um, very eye-opening um, to hear the stories of others and I think connecting with other women and other survivors was um, a huge part of my getting through all of it um, because you do feel alone. Nobody I knew had been through this or a couple, maybe one, um, and I spoke with her often. And to have that um, support network and to hear, you know, how other people got through it, what they did was really helpful for me. And then I think I, I am a teacher and I um, I teach <laughs> and I have always been um, an advocate for social justice issues and this became something that I couldn't not speak about. I, I just, the injustice was just so shocking that I couldn't not speak about it. It just kept pouring out of me um, and maybe that was part of the trauma too, that it just kept coming out and I had probably kept it all inside of me for 30 years. Well, I had. Um, so it just sort of poured out. It wasn't a plan to, to pour it out, but um, from it I started, yeah, posting on social media, explaining what's happening in the courts um, because people didn't know. I didn't know when I entered. I really had no clue. Um, and from that I met um, a gentleman from the Australian Progressives, um, Edward Carroll, and he suggest he said, you know, have you ever thought about running um, for parliament for um, election? I was like, oh, sort of, maybe, but <clears throat> I just really didn't think it was something I could do. And he said, you know, have a think about it, um, look at our, our policies and, you know, everything that they stood for and their values were um, in, in alignment with my own. And so I did run um, in the federal election for the seat of Ryan where I live um and it was that was hugely healing like it was amazing to speak to um women and and men in the street when you're you know (laughs) passing out flyers and they will tell you their story of what happened to them as a child in a family of domestic violence um you know 90 year old women were telling me their story of a lifetime of domestic violence um and you know the ramifications and for their children as well um so it was hugely humbling to have you know those stories shared with me um 
and you know I didn't didn't win of course <laughs> um but <laughs> not yet <laughs> I don't yeah, know it's it's so it's very it's all consuming to to do that it's quite a huge undertaking um but the you know the outcome being able to make changes <laughs> was the goal and um and to help other people and uh, you know that is my goal and every other survivor I speak with to end this, to stop this from happening. You know, it's preventable. We know the changes we need. And the problem has been um, that politicians don't listen to survivors. Um, you know, we've we've learned these problems through um, the horrendous treatment of, of our First Nations people here. Um, you know, the closing the gap um, plan has not worked. They The, the voice of the... Um, survivors of Indigenous people was not being hurt. Um, so that's changing. Um, and it's the same with survivors of domestic violence. You cannot change something you don't measure and you don't understand and you can't understand it without hearing the stories of the survivors. Um, so the stories need to be told. And, um, and, and the healing part of that is that you have solidarity with other survivors, which is I can't even explain the difference between going it alone and having that solidarity with people who know exactly what you've been through. Um, it changed my life and, um, and I hope that talking about it brings other survivors into the into the network where they know that you know there's strength in numbers we're stronger together um we say nothing about us without us um the change has to be led by us um so i i hope that's what's starting to happen and i hope that the the government are truly listening you know we've seen a lot of tick boxing um and a lot of pr stunts in the past uh, and the same old, same old keeps happening. Um, and, you know, the people at the top, <laughs> the lawyers and the um, judges have a lot to to lose. You know, it's a, the family lawyers are making an amazing amount of money um, off, off of domestic violence um, victims and the perpetrators. So there's huge pushback. Um, and, and, perpetrators unfortunately find their way into power they they like power um so unfortunately there are a lot of people in places where change can be made who shouldn't be there um quite frankly so we've also that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've seen world, that that's a worldwide problem exactly um and another thing we've not got to make a joke here. i'm not trying to make a joke yeah, here, i know but it's yeah, true there are a lot of people in positions of power that shouldn't be there <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's, you know, people coming together, survivors, the, whoever are the the downtrodden coming together is vital for um, standing up against the bully um, and that's what we need to do. And so that sort of has been my drive to, to really help push for change. But also, to, yeah, to, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I think I've, I don't know if for whatever reason I've always had um, a sense of self-worth, <laughs> even though it was eroded That's from me. And, you know, it's my right to, to tell, it's my basic human right to be safe. 
um, and for my children to be safe. And the injustice of that is just so incomprehensible. <laughs> um, and you, that, that's what pushes me to keep using my voice, um, even when it shakes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you make a great point. Um, it is our inherent right. We don't have to ask anyone if we can have it back, please, or demand it back. Everyone is born with with these rights to to be free, to have agency over themselves, to live the life that, of their choosing. Um, and I really applaud your efforts and your strength and admire your bravery in everything that you've done. Um, what will you do next? I, I, I can't imagine you stopping because you weren't elected this time. I imagine that you, you'll do something amazing. Um, any ideas of what you, you might be looking at in the future? Uh, I, I don't know that I've got that in me. <laughs> uh, it, it really was all-consuming. Um, it's not out of the field of possibilities. Um, I've connected with a group of survivors and we've created a charity um, where we hope to really push for change through, you know, large numbers of survivors having a say, having a voice um, and embedding lived experience in every decision that's being made going forward. So we're still sort of finishing, finalising the legalities of that. Um, so that is my current plan. Um, I have a, a campaign, a social media campaign or a petition at the moment called How Dare She, um, where I outline exactly what's happening to women once they leave because, you know, for that very brief moment after I left, I had, you know, a month or so of being, feeling free. Um, I'd had terrible physical pain for many years and after my ex-husband moved out, all physical pain left i had no physical pain left um and that pain had been quite debilitating i was you know constantly seeing physiotherapists and 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 all sorts of treatment and it was amazing that <laughs> straight after he left i had no physical pain left um and it's i'm still physical pain free um so that was amazing. And I had that brief moment of, oh, my gosh, I'm free. I can make decisions for myself. I don't have to listen to, you know, being belittled and humiliated and, and harmed. Um, I don't have to put up with sexual violence. Like it was just such a freeing feeling. And then the post-separation abuse started um, and I just never heard of, I just had no comprehension of what was coming. Um, so I think... To, making sure that women know what the patterns are after separation, that post-separation abuse is really important. So that campaign says, you know, listen to us. This is what we need. It spells out we need legal support. We need the pro bono legal support. That's missing here in Australia. Um, we need the family court system to be shut down. You know, it's often likened to the slave trade it's it's a the premise is so unjust and cruel and um and dangerous you know we can't have a single judge ruling over children you know we're not women and children are not furniture um to be divided up um so i think you know that campaign spells out exactly what i see or and survivors see 
needing to change. And it's um, so powerful because that's how I found you, if you will, oh, yeah. uh, was through that campaign and the and the things that I had read online. And it's hashtag how dare she, correct? Yeah. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I encourage people to follow it um, and learn more about this this strong, compelling voice that Janine Reese puts forth to speak on behalf of all of us as as uh, women, as victims of gender-based violence, as survivors of domestic violence, all the things. Um, and I, you know, I can't say enough how proud I am of you and the things that you've been saying and how open you've been about the experience because um these are the facts, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, this is really what it comes down to is that these systems are not constructed to work on behalf of women and children in abusive relationships, and it needs to change. Absolutely. I Thank you, so Maria. That's really kind. Thank you. You are most welcome. It's my honor to talk with you, and I'm so glad that um, we were able to connect today continents and oceans apart uh, on this topic. And I I certainly will continue to follow your campaign. Wish you nothing but the best. And I hope we can stay in touch. Thanks, Maria. And thank you for everything you're doing too. Thank you. Attention Spanish-speaking listeners. Listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish-speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes, escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP. 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. Learn more at genesisshelter.org donate. Thanks for joining us. And reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org o por llamar o mandar mensaje de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-946. 4357. Servicios bilingües de Génesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un text para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.